Oh, yes. Good morning, everyone. So great to see you. Uh, thanks for venturing out today. We're so grateful that uh, the roads are in pretty good shape this morning. So glad that you are here. We are uh, in the middle of a series now at Union Chapel called All In. Every January, we talk about stewardship and how we manage all of the wonderful resources that God gives us and how, how stewardship is so central to our relationship with Jesus. Today, we want to look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and consider the words of Jesus himself about this important subject. You may be interested to know that there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible regarding money, how to earn it, how to save it, how to manage it, how to give it, and this is a, a good example of it, and Jesus is the perfect model for us, I think, in so many ways with regard to the subject. So I hope that uh, you'll be blessed and encouraged and inspired by it, and so today's message is all in, enough is enough, and I hope that it encourages you. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 19 to 24. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, would you please? And Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God inspire us today and transform our lives through these important words. You may be seated. Thanks so much. You know, consumerism and materialism are not new concepts to humanity. I mean, modern America is not the first place that's been materialistic. In fact, most people in our world have some form of materialism. I just remind you that materialism has nothing to do with how much we earn or how much we own. Instead, it's a preoccupation with things of the world rather than spiritual things. So materialism grips all of us to one degree or another. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would weigh in on this very important subject. And so when he says that you cannot serve both God and money, that's, that's an alert, isn't it? He said, you know, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That's, that's a real indicator. And so he said, look, you'll either love one, hate the other, or vice versa. So you, you cannot, he, he didn't say you should not try to serve both. He said you cannot serve the material world and God at the same time. So you have to keep your perspective as healthy as, as possible. Now, one of the things that uh, I discovered in research for this particular message was this list of warning signals that were written by uh, a pastor in America called Dan Reeland. And these statements may indicate that your loyalties are shifting from your primary devotion to God and onto material things. So just look at this list of statements. I put them in your outline in your bulletin as well. It says, when you go from managing your money to being anxious about it, 
Or number two, when envy and jealousy creep into your life, that can be a sign. When you lose appreciation for what God has already given you, that's an indicator. Number four, when you lose the joy of cheerful giving, it's, it's no longer joyful for you to give. Number five, when you seek things more than God. Number six, when you think that things will make you happy. No one here has ever suffered from that, right? It grips us all, doesn't it? It gets a hold of us. The, the billionaire was asked, how do you know when you have enough money? How do you know when you have enough? He said, when you have just a little more. Number seven, when enough is not enough. There is, there is an antidote to materialism and the grip of money and material things in your life. There, there's an antidote to that. And it's called contentment. Contentment is actually a spiritual virtue that you can cultivate in your life. The Apostle Paul said, as he wrote the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, he said, I have learned to be content no matter the circumstances. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, wouldn't you agree? He said, I've learned to be content when I have a lot, and I've learned to be content when I have virtually nothing at all. In all the circumstances I find myself, I have learned, he said, in other words, I've cultivated, I've developed in my life a part of the, the, the nature of who I am at the level of my character that I can be content no matter what. That's a strong statement. Then the next verse, Philippians 4.12, he said, I can be content in all things. And then verse 13 is the one that most of us are familiar with. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The context of that verse is materialism. It's interesting. You say, well, Pastor, really, this message isn't for me. I, I'm, not, I'm not a materialistic person. Maybe you're not, but you would be the exception. You know, in America right now, it doesn't matter what town you go to, Muncie's no exception. If you go out on the perimeter of these towns across America, you will see new developments, and they are these new storage units. And there's a big fence around them, and you've got a special gate. You punch in the code because you have now rented extra storage because your basement is not enough to hold all your junk. Your garage and your attic is not enough room to hold all your junk. And so you've got all the extra junk. Now you have to rent extra storage units in order to hold your junk. But materialism isn't our problem. And so maybe it is. So Jesus is trying to give us some context. So about contentment, I love this statement from John Stott. I've actually put this theologian statement in your notes as well, and I want to put it on the screen because I think it's such a strong statement. He said, contentment is the secret of inward peace. It remembers the stark truth that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Life, in fact, is a pilgrimage from one moment of nakedness to another. So we should travel light and live simply. Our enemy is not possessions, but excess. Our battle cry is not nothing, but enough. We've got enough. Uh, that's such a helpful statement. So wise. And then I've listed a handful of famous persons uh, from history uh, who have something to say about this subject, and I've put those in your notes as well. 
The first one is from Dr. Billy Graham. He said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? From someone who may have a clue. Frank Clark said, our economy is based upon people wanting more, their happiness on wanting less. That's very perceptive. Very perceptive. Look at P.T. Barnum of Barnum and Bailey Circus. Did you hear? They're canceling the circus. Barnum and Bailey is such an icon of culture here in America, the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Now, there, there are some folks who are glad the circus is ending. I am not one of them. I'd love it if the circus could keep going. But P.T. Barnum said, money is in some respects like fire. It is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master. Hmm. Listen to Harold Nye. He said, if you're not generous with a meager income, you will never be generous with abundance. That is absolutely true. And it's true. There are people in this room right now, you have been telling yourselves for a long time, as soon as I make a little bit more money, then I'll become generous. No, you won't. Because the patterns that you have established when you have very little are the same patterns you will follow if you have more. Calvin Coolidge, one of our former presidents, no person was ever honored for what he received. Honor has been the reward for what he gave. It's helpful, isn't it? Carl Menninger, the great psychological scientist, fabulous tradition uh, with Dr. Menninger, look what he said. Generous people are rarely mentally ill people. That's so helpful, so, so strong. George Adams, I've never met an unhappy giver. Now, let me just go on record, I haven't either. I'm sure there may be a few out there somewhere, but it's hard to find one. Very, very rare is an unhappy, generous person. You may be a person who's unhappy. One of the keys, one of the antidotes to unhappiness is to become generous. There you go. And then from our Father John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement in the world, he said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. This is a three-point sermon right there. John Wesley, by the way, wrote over 400 books and pamphlets in his day. Uh, Wesley uh, started a movement the Method called the Methodists that uh, reached tens of thousands of people in Great Britain and, and parts of Europe and ultimately to the North American continent. In his lifetime, he was a very, very famous, well-known person. And you can imagine that there was a substantial amount of resources that came his way. Offerings from the, the ministries that he formed, royalties from the books he wrote. As I said, over 400 books and pamphlets. So a substantial amount of money, resources passed through his hands. Wesley, on his deathbed, as his health was declining at the age of 83, ordered his associates to eliminate all of the money in all of the accounts, which wasn't a lot, by the way, by the end of his life. And the only money that Wesley left on the occasion of his death was enough for his funeral expenses. That's it. Pretty inspiring. Well, this is the first of the year, and what most of us do around this time of the year is that we do an assessment. We evaluate how we've done in the past year. We ask questions like, were my goals accomplished? 
Were the activities that I set up for myself completed? Did I manage my time well? Whatever those certain things happen to be. Or on the other side, we ask, was it, did I let myself get too busy? Did my life get cluttered? Did my focus get distracted and fractured? And, and so we do an assessment. And if you are a person like me who likes to assess how we've, have I done in these categories uh, and what are my goals, my personal, my family goals, my professional goals in the, in the coming year, then, you, then you're a person, I think, who, who is wise about the where they're managing their lives. And if that's true for you, then I want to just help you today facilitate that process of evaluation and goal setting and what I want to do is just offer you these four questions for you to consider as you're in that process. Uh, and those questions are on your outline. And the first one is this. And the question is, who is in charge? Who's in charge of my life? Now listen to Psalm 24, verse 1. Psalm 24, 1. It states very clearly that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's, and all that is in it, the world, and all who live in it. So in other words, the whole world, everything you see, belongs to God. And all of the people, you, me, everyone, we all belong to God too. So the Bible is clear that God is the owner of everything and everyone. Now, if we, if we believe that to be true, it will actually help us get perspective on this whole question of stewardship and the, and the management of the resources God gives us. Because if we don't actually own anything, the ultimate truth is that we don't own a thing. I went through this uh, routine, <laughs> went through this routine when, I, when Beth and I paid off a house, and I thought, okay, finally, we own a house. And I remember just standing outside, in the driveway, looking at the house going, I own this house. And then I looked over and I saw a tree. And I own that tree. And then I thought, the tree's about 100 years old. The tree was here a long time before I got here. And then there's that dirt. The tree's sitting in the dirt. The house is sitting on. Dirt's been here a long time. Dirt will be here a long time. After I'm gone, shoot, dirt will be here a long time after the house is gone. And then I realized, if I own anything, it's really just a pile of bricks and sticks put in some particular order. And then I realized, I don't own anything. I don't own any of this. I remember... Um, People would come into our home, and, and, and Beth and I built a home several years ago, and we just sold it last year, and people would come in our home, and it was really nice, and virtually everyone that came in our house said, this is really nice, and it, it was really nice, and a couple of years ago, someone came in for the first time, and they complimented us on the house, and this is what I heard myself say. This came out of my mouth. I hadn't thought about it this way before, but this is what I heard myself say. I said, thank you. It is a very nice home. Beth and I, Beth, my wife, Beth and I are just really thankful that the Lord allows us to live here. And when I heard myself say that, I went, you know, that is, that's good. That's right. That's the truth. That's the right perspective. 
That's the right perspective. Lord, thank you. Thank you that, al- that you allow us to have whatever it is in our possession, that we can in- enjoy it, that it's a blessing to us. And so we should be grateful and thankful for it. But it does beg the question, who is in charge? When we acknowledge that truth, we can release our feelings of ownership and whatever feelings of entitlement we might have toward anything that happens to pass through our hands. Here's the second question that you might want to ask, and that is, who's number one? Who's number one? Yeah, if God is the owner of all that we have, then he deserves the first of everything. If you didn't hear last week's sermon on first things, first things first, I encourage you, I, I really encourage you to get online and listen to it. Because, because there is great blessing associated with, connected with peoples whose heart and, and attitudes place God first in their life. That first things, first priorities, first events, first fruits, firstborn, first parts, when given to God, recognizing that that's what he desires of us and asks of us to give the first part, that his blessing flows to that. We read last week from Deuteronomy that when we make God first, that the blessing of God will come upon us and overtake us. And it's true that you cannot, you cannot outpace God when you put him first. His favor, his blessing, his provision actually meet you in a supernatural way in your life. And you find yourself carried along in the momentum of God's spirit and the activity of his spirit in your life. It's, it's just the way you want to live. It's the blessed life. It's, it's, it's how you live in God's favor for your life by putting him first. It is a, it is a powerful, powerful principle of the kingdom of God. It is, it's an immutable law that if you put God first, he will see you and your needs met. And so when we ask the question, who's number one? We want to make sure Jesus is number one. That's why Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your, your crops, the first fruits. And then it's not a coincidence that the next verse, verse 10 of Proverbs 3 says, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So putting God first invokes the blessing, favor of God. Reminds me of a father who took his son to McDonald's to get a Happy Meal. And the two of them are sitting there and the son is eating away. And the dad decides he wants a French fryer from his son's pile. And so the dad reaches for a French fry and his son puts his hands up like this in front of the fries and says, no, those are mine. And the dad is disappointed by the response of the son because he realizes the son doesn't get it that the father's actually the son. Have you heard this before? You're acting like this is familiar. Some of you haven't heard it. The The father was disappointed because the son didn't realize that the father was the source of those fries. The boy wouldn't have the fries if the father hadn't provided them. The, the other thing that the boy didn't realize is that the father could just take, the, take them from him. He could over, easily overpower the boy and just take the fries from him. Or the father could bury the boy in fries. Oh, you like fries. You just get a pile of fries and overwhelm him with, with fries. 
But the thing that the father was most disappointed in was that the son was unwilling to share out of the father's provision. No matter how hard you try, if you give God first place, you will be blessed. So who's in charge? Who's number one? Then number three, another question you might ask is, who do you love? Who do you love? Now, if I ask you today, do you love God? You say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love God. Okay, well. The Apostle Paul said that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Here's something I've discovered, that while we're capable of giving without loving, it is impossible to love without giving. Did you catch that? It's possible to give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. And there are people, maybe you've heard yourself do this, well, I don't give much of anything at all, but I care. I care about people. I'm compassionate. I, I, I really feel for people who are down and out and needy. But I don't really do anything personally to help them. But I care. Hmm. So you can give without loving. And people do. But you cannot love. You can't really care without doing something about it. Not really. And it's an important distinction. And so you need to answer the question, who do you love? And it begs the question, how much do I love God? And do I love him with all of my heart? I, I found this this uh, story in the paper a few years ago. This is back when I got the paper paper. Remember those days? How many of you still get a physical paper paper delivered to your house every day? Raise your hand like this. These are folks who, you know, need the paper in their hands. How many of you just read the paper online? That's what I do every day. How many of you don't read the paper? Oh, my gosh. Look at that. Those are the emotionally healthy people. So I read this article out of Belleville, Michigan. You know, under the category, who do you love? A guy named Bob Thompson. And prior to this, this article, 40 years ago, he started a road building company out of the basement of his house with $3,500. Now fast forward 40 years and he sold his business. And the amount he sold his business was, wait for it, $422 million. Bam. I mean, that's a good day, right? I sold, I sold my business for $422 million. How many of you could get by on that? $422 million. You might be able to, yeah, get by. Here's what Bob Thompson did, though, because he's an unusual fellow, apparently. He goes to his employees. And there are over 500 of them at the time. He said, I got a couple of pieces of news for you. Number one, none of you are going to lose, the, lose your job. He said, I've arranged with the new owner of the company to make sure all of you keep your job. That's good news, all right? That's a guy looking out for his employees. He said, now I've got even better news. This is how the paper reported it. He said, you are all going to share in the proceeds of the sale of my company. And did they ever? The big-hearted boss divvied up $128 million among his 550 workers. 
80 of the folks had a bonus beyond belief, they would all become millionaires. So he shares the money with the salesmen, the secretaries, the guy in the gravel pits, the gals who hold the road signs. He said, people work exceedingly hard in my business, and this is a demanding company. Translation, 14-hour days, six-day work week, 99-degree sun, 300-degree asphalt. Some people, he said, make a lot of money in the stock market, but he said, we're dependent on people. So it would just not be fair not to do it. They've allowed me to have the success I have and live the way I want to. And so if you're in that company, the article gave the numbers. If you're an hourly worker, most of whom have pensions or 401k plans, they receive $2,000 for each year of service as a bonus. Salaried workers who didn't have pensions, were given checks or annuity certificates they could cash at the age of 55 or 62, and those ranged from between $1 and $2 million. <laughs> I know some of you are going, why didn't I go to work for that guy's road company? Thompson even included some retirees and widows in his plan. So guys who formerly worked for him who had now passed on and their widows were, were surviving, he gave them the same benefit he would have if the workers were still alive and working for him. And he paid all the taxes for all of these annuities. And the taxes amounted to $25 million. So if he promised you a million-dollar annuity, you would actually get a million dollars, paid all the taxes. Amazing. Then the article also implies, suggests, that he had plans to give away virtually all of the rest of the proceeds from the sale of the business as well. Because it turns out, for 37 years, he and his wife had been living in the same house, three-bedroom ranch. And he didn't have a big office with a big mahogany desk and expensive art on the walls. He just lived very simply. And he cared about people. So it's an important question, isn't it? Who do you love? Who do you love? It'll help you get your priorities ordered and straight. And you'll find yourself meeting God's expectations for your life. And if you, if you struggle in loving God enough to actually respond in an obedient way to his call on your life, then it's good for you to pause and just ask yourself, how much of God's love have I been the recipient of in my life? How, just how many blessings do I have? Just what benefits have come to my life as a result of God's amazing love toward me? And when you start adding all of that up, you will quickly realize that God loves you more than you deserve. And the best response to God's love is to reciprocate by loving him. Who do you love? Well, one more, one more question then in this process, if you will, and that is, who do you serve? Who's in charge? Who's number one? Who do you love? And then who do you serve? You might, you might have heard the scriptural injunction that we can't serve God and money at the same time. We just heard that today in Matthew 6. Unfortunately, people don't often realize how enslaved they have become 
to material things until it really has its, its, its grasp on you. That's why getting perspective on all of this and getting the tools you need to process the stewardship and management of the resources of God in your life are so important. And that's why I'm so excited about offering Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey's the best guy out there. These materials are the, are the, are the best available to help people sort these important questions. And if I had the power to make you do one thing, I don't, but if I had the power to make you do something, I would make you take Financial Peace University. My wife Beth and I have been through financial peace. Our boys have been through financial peace. I insisted. You must go through financial peace. And both of them have benefited greatly. Our youngest son, Isaac, and his wife, Derica, they follow the plan explicitly. And it's revolutionized their lives. Everyone is a good candidate to do financial peace. If you haven't taken Financial Peace University, you should. And you say, well, I really don't need that. I'm not in a stage of life. I don't care who you are, how old you are, what stage of life you're in, whether you're old or young or rich or poor. Financial peace will help you. It will, it will give you the wisdom you need to sort out this most important area of your life. And even if you don't learn that much because, you know, you've already got it sorted and you're following the principles in a biblical way, uh, these, are, these are skills and ideas that you can pass on to your children, your grandchildren, and I just can't tell you how, uh, how impressed I am with financial peace. And I hope that you'll take advantage of it as it starts next week. So you have to go online to register. You can't register at Union Chapel for this. This is Dave Ramsey's ministry. You've got to register with him. You've got to pay him 98 bucks for the, for the course, and he'll send you the materials. You know, it's good to be king. Ramsey's the king. He's the big dog. And so he charges 98 bucks. That's not our charge. That's his charge. And when you're, the, when you're the king, you can charge anything you want for your stuff. And he charges 98 bucks. It could be 150 bucks, but it's only 98. You say, oh, I don't have 98 bucks. Well, find it. Borrow it. Find, dig it up somewhere because it will add 98 bucks times thousands of dollars of value in your life. So I hope, that, hope you'll get signed up. It's, I mean, it's just, I can't, what else can I say? It's great. It'll, it'll be so helpful to you. Let me conclude with one more story. This comes from the 15th century Russia, who was led by a very powerful leader of his day, and his name was Ivan the Great. Maybe you've heard that name from history. Ivan the Great. He was very ambitious, very powerful leader, uh, a conquering kind of king, and, and, and soaked up a lot of territory in his day. And at some point in Ivan the Great's career, his associates came to him and said, Ivan, you have to get married. You have to produce an heir to the throne. And Ivan the Great said, I don't have time to get, be married. I'm, you know, I'm too ambitious for other things. And I don't have time to find a wife. So he said, if you think I need a wife, you go find me one. And his associate said, okay, we'll find you a wife. And they found him a wife. And she was the daughter of the king of Greece at the time. She's a beautiful woman, many wonderful qualities. And so the king of Greece agreed that his daughter could marry Ivan the Great. So the associates go back to, to Ivan and say, we found your wife. She's, you know, she's, she's going to work great. She's, she's wonderful. 
And Ivan said, fine, I'll marry her. Well, then out of Greece comes this requirement. If you're going to marry the daughter of the king of Greece, you must become a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. And so there was that caveat put on Ivan the Great. And when Ivan heard this, he said, all right, fine, I'll become a member of the Greek Orthodox Church, no problem. So Greece sent tutors up to Russia to coach up Ivan the Great about what it means to be a member of Greek Orthodox Church. And Ivan, while he's taking these classes, Ivan for years has had this entourage of men, 500 warriors who were fiercely loyal to Ivan the Great, who are armed and dangerous at all times. So you can imagine this, this great conquering hero of the 15th century surrounded day and night by these 500 fierce, loyal men. And so he said, if I have to join the church, you guys have to join the church. They all go, oh. But they submit to his will. <laughs> they said more than that, but I hasten. So they're all coached up about membership in the Greek Orthodox Church. So they all go to Greece for the wedding. But before the wedding, the big wedding, there has to be a baptism service. You have to be baptized into the membership of the Greek Orthodox Church. And so the big day of the baptism shows up. And so you've got 500 of these warriors, full regalia, armed with their weapons and all that. And 500 Greek Orthodox priests who march into the blue waters of the Mediterranean off the shores of Greece a spectacular day. You can imagine the thousands of people assembled there for this, this huge event. And the king of Greece is thrilled because once he marries off his daughter to Ivan the Great, he knows Ivan the Great's not going to come for him. And so it's all good for everybody. And they march into the water. And there's always one, one preacher in a crowd that will mess up the whole day if you let them. And that happened this day, and one of the Greek Orthodox priests raises his hand. He said, wait a minute. Isn't there a rule that says in the Greek Orthodox Church that you can't baptize a warrior? And once they check the books, they go, oh. The guys are already in the water. They're waist deep in water with 500 priests ready to baptize everybody. And so a hastily held meeting is convened on the shore. And this didn't take long because they're all standing in the water waiting. Thousands of people observing. And so this was the ruling. There would be a compromise. They would all be baptized and confirmed into the Greek Orthodox Church, except they would pull their swords and raise their arms. And as they are baptized, everything would go underwater in the waters of baptism, except their arm and their sword. History records that day as the day of the unbaptized arm. Isn't that curious? Isn't that interesting? That's just fascinating to me. Now we're in a series we're calling All In. All In. All in. Everything in. All the parts under. All in. But I wonder, as you're processing your life in the beginning of a new year, I wonder, how many unbaptized bank accounts 
How many unbaptized financial plans? How many unbaptized relationships? How many unbaptized careers, jobs? How many unbaptized wills? How many unbaptized life parts might still exist in our lives? And isn't the mandate to place God first and in charge and your heart in love with him, isn't that the right next step so that all of our baptized, unbaptized parts Go all in. Isn't that that best? You know it is. You know it's best. So may God give us all the courage and the faith and the confident trust that we need in God and his plan for our lives so that every area, every aspect of our lives will go all the way in. So that his blessing can flow freely and powerfully in our lives. You think about that. Let's pause and pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for Jesus. How clear, how explicit are his words to us. We can't, we can't serve both. It just can't. can't be done. And so, Lord, help us to identify those unbaptized parts of our lives so that we might be fully fully immersed, go all in. Help us, God, to answer these questions. Who's in charge? Who do I love? Who's number one? Who do we serve? And as we answer these questions, Lord, help us to have the courage we need to take the steps necessary toward you to make Jesus the ultimate priority of our lives. We need you, Lord. We're dependent on you. So thank you for your spirit to embolden and inspire us to take these steps in meaningful ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. Would you stand with us now as we sing?